Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, continued 3. All right, let's go ahead and get into our lesson today. And I want to begin by saying that I think from a, from a very personal level, that what we're about to study today changed my life. It probably is the single thing that had the most influence on me moving away from what I would call churchism into understanding God better, into understanding His Word better, into loving God better, into truly wanting to search His Scriptures and understand how I should think, how I should live. And I want to begin by acknowledging <laughs> we've spent the better part of three lessons covering only the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. I know it's a slow pace, and I'm afraid it's not likely to increase very much for a while. Um, my goal, however, is not to teach you scriptural minutiae or theology. My goal is to add the necessary context, some of it historical, some of it cultural, and some of it language-oriented, so that the true meaning of what we're reading comes to the surface unadulterated by unintended errors, man-made doctrines, and modern Christian spin that tries to make it compatible with contemporary beliefs and, and agendas. Now, in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, the considerable amount of time that I'm taking with these many detours and exp extended explanations is only because what those regular, everyday Jews who came to hear Yeshua held as common knowledge, well, it's unknown and foreign to us in the 21st century. Now, the past three lessons have essentially been a build-up to what we're going to encounter today. And what comes today is nothing less than a plain, firm, and unequivocal refutation of one of the most broadly held doctrines of the Christian Church worldwide. Even more, what Yeshua says to the crowd of thousands and thousands of Jews that have come from as far away as the southern desert of Judea to the northern reaches of Syria, and even from several Roman provinces on the eastern side of the Jordan River, most of the people, by the way, coming in hopes of a miraculous healing of their illnesses and injuries and deformities and demon possessions. This all sets a foundation for all of His followers, Jew or Gentile, then and into an indefinite future of exactly how we are to understand His speech, how we are to interpret all of His words and actions as recorded in the Gospel accounts. So before we open our Bibles together, I just want to relate a brief story to you. For the past 25 years, I've had the privilege of taking several hundreds of people to Israel on a tour. And on some of the tours, especially when I had a pastor or two on the bus, I took them to the Mount of Beatitudes. There we would spend a couple of hours on the lovely grounds, not just for the beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee, but also for a Bible lesson. And naturally, we would read at least part, if not all, of the Sermon on the Mount. Invariably, I would ask a pastor on the tour to read it for us. And they were always kind to accommodate me. And starting at Matthew 5.1, I could see the easy familiarity these pastors had 
with the moving words of the Beatitudes, and one or two of them even had it memorized. Often they spoke with teary eyes. But then as I asked them to continue, they would encounter verse 17, and then 18, and then 19. Some paused partway through, perhaps not sure they wanted to proceed. Others had a deer-in-the-headlights look come over their faces. Some seemed puzzled, as though after reading this chapter numerous times in the past, Jesus' words of verses 17 to 19 were suddenly new to them. Such can be the case when one visits the Holy Land of Israel. Now I'm sure it's obvious to you, as it quickly became to them, why I chose these pastors, in particular, to read the Sermon on the Mount to the group. It was my intent to make an impact. Now it's my prayer that these words we are about to dissect will make a similar impact on you. So without further ado, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and let's talk about what it is that makes these words so monumental, so important to our faith, so unsettling to much of the institutional Christianity that these words are often ignored. So once again, Matthew chapter 5, let's move right down to verse 17. We're going to read only four whole verses. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1228. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, these commands, and teaches others to do so, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the parushim, the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go verse by verse. Eh, let's go word by word. The opening text is, depending on your English Bible version, do not think, or do not suppose, or think not. I don't have to dwell on the meaning of this simple phrase because it's self-evident. Christ means something like, now I know what some of you might be thinking about what I've already said, and how you might take what I'm about to say, but you'd be wrong. In other words, Yeshua is interrupting the regular flow of His speech to make a point because he knows that some will object to what he has to say, others will read into it things he does not mean. In fact, I can imagine him making a rather dramatic pause, taking a few seconds, inhaling deeply, and then scanning the crowd, making sure he has the attention of everyone listening. The purpose is to clarify the interpretation of His instructions and teaching in order that the people listening rule out a certain way of thinking that some, maybe most of them, might automatically assume. Why might they automatically assume wrongly? Because they, like us, had mental filters. Humans have always had mental filters. Without even being fully conscious of it, we all have, since we were very young children, developed a certain way 
of looking at our world. And that view of our world colors everything we see and hear and come into contact with. Therefore, our personal mental filters filter out some information and allows other information to pass through. Some of the way our mental filters develop has to do with the temperaments we're born with and the sensitivities we develop along the way that might be inexplicable. Some of it has to do with our family history. Maybe our family system. The culture we've been raised in, or maybe we have joined to, plays a, a significant role, as does the teaching, whether it's formal or informal, that we've received. Our personal experiences and the prejudices and the preferences that we develop, and so much more, all take their place to help form our views, and thus they become the blueprints that construct our personal mental filters. The Jews that Christ was speaking to that day naturally all had their own mental filters. And while not universal among every attendee, we can probably make some general conclusions about the nature of those mental filters. First of all, the attending Jews were aware since their earliest age of their rich Hebrew heritage. They knew of their ancestral father, Abraham, of their ancestors' time in Egypt, of their exodus. They knew of the wilderness journey, about the happenings on Mount Sinai, who Moses was, and the lofty place he holds in Jewish religious history. Second, the multitude were entirely aware of the Torah and of the Law of Moses, even though most were not well versed in its details. Remember, at that time in history, the Hebrew Bible was still being painstakingly hand-copied onto scrolls, and no one but the priesthood possessed more than a book or two at best. And that was due to the expense, time involved in creating each copy. Third, there is no question as to the continuing and never-ending validity and truth of the Torah and the Prophets and the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Of this there was no debate among the re Jewish religious and academic elite. It's taken for granted. Fourth, since the majority of the people of Israel had long ago dispersed to regions all over Asia and Europe and the Middle East and North Africa, few of the Jewish diaspora were able to make the several annual Torah-commanded pilgrimages to the Temple in Jerusalem. Whether that journey was to sacrifice to atone for their sins or attend a, a biblical festival. So their contact with Jerusalem, the Temple, and the priesthood was rare, if ever, unless they lived within the immediate area of the Holy Land or were both wealthy and religiously zealous. Fifth, although the Torah itself commands that it is the Levite priests who are responsible to teach the Hebrew people the Torah, that had ceased to happen centuries earlier. The exile of the Jews to Babylon had created this huge vacuum in Jewish religious leadership and ritual as well as in the people's knowledge of Scripture. So sixth, out of this vacuum was born the synagogue, as more or less a necessity. Each synagogue was local 
and it sold, served a fairly small community of Jews. Very much really like the way the church operates. Each synagogue was independent of the others, and so the religious expression of each varied a bit. In time, however, some Jewish leadership developed then standardized to a degree the synagogue system. The synagogue at first served the Babylonian exiles who had decided not to return to their homeland but to make wherever it was that they were their permanent home. Later on, the institution of the synagogue spread even to the Holy Land, even though those Jews resided in relative close proximity to the temple. Therefore, whatever religious training and instruction that the average Israelite received came from his or her local synagogue. And who operated these synagogues? Who did the teaching? This was the province of the Pharisees, for the most part. That is, the synagogue leadership and the teachers were lay people. They were non-priests, and they had no connection to the temple. And because the synagogues were dominated by the tradition-driven instruction of the Pharisees, then it was tradition and man-made Jewish law, as opposed to the actual biblical law of Moses, that the typical Jew learned and practiced. So the mental filters that Jews had in the first century were created primarily on the basis of their distinct Jewish culture and on the traditions and Jewish law that the religious leaders taught them. So this large crowd of Jews, without realizing it, filter every word. Yeshua says, through their mental matrix of knowledge and viewpoint. Therefore, much of what Yeshua so uh, says sounds new to them, even though it's old. Some of it sounds wrong, because they've been taught wrongly. Sometimes their skepticism of Jesus' words is because they don't know what the Torah actually says, and thus they don't have the proper reference point to judge the difference between the actual biblical God-given Torah and the man-made traditions, the doctrines they and their forefathers have been taught in the synagogue all their lives. Now, this ought to sound familiar to us even if we might not be terribly happy to have it pointed out. Because it's like that in the typical Christian church. And it's been so since short, shortly after its inception. I mean, the people either don't have a Bible, or don't read and study the Bible, and so whatever the church authorities say that the Bible says and means, is what the people generally accept as unassailable truth. The name for these many interpretations of the Bible and resulting rules is doctrines. So while the church has nearly always been doctrine-based as opposed to Bible-based, the synagogue has nearly always been tradition-based as opposed to Torah-based. Christ's concern, then, is that the people who are listening to Him will think that under His own authority He is either changing the Law of Moses or effectively abolishing it and replacing it with new teachings of His own. So He begins with what words? Do not think. So the people are told not to think, what exactly? What are they not to think? He says they're not to think 
that he came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what exactly did that mean to his listeners? Quick reminder. Now, whatever we in the West might think, we have to always keep in mind that Matthew was a believing Jew whose thought processes followed a Hebrew path. So first, whatever the people sitting on that hillside think Yeshua was trying to tell them in his sermon, he insists that nothing of what he says involves him abolishing anything. Abolishing, overturning, destroying, that's not what he came to do. The Greek word being translated as abolish is kataluo. In the Greek lexicons, they all agree. It means to abolish or to overthrow, and so our English Bibles have it right. Second, the thing he specifically emphasizes that he's not overthrowing is the Law and the Prophets. So precisely, what is Christ meaning by the Law and the Prophets? In Greek, the term law is nomos, and the term prophets is prophetis. In this use, in Matthew 5.17, the term the law is referring to the law of Moses, or more accurately, in Hebrew thinking, the Torah, the five books of Moses. The term prophets this is exactly what we what it sounds like it means. It means the books and the works of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, to name a few of them. Now let's take a tiny detour to discuss a serious language issue that to my great surprise seems to go unrecognized by nearly every commentary written on the Gospels. One of the most difficult matters to sort out in the New Testament not as much in the Gospels, but far more so in Paul's writings, is the prodigious use of the word law, nomos, that we find in it. And we all know that the term law is, within most of Christianity, a negative. Now, when translating from Hebrew to Greek and then further on to English, the word nomos gets used in a number of ways that cause great confusion. I want to explain that. When the Hebrew word is Torah, then the Greek translation that's used for it is nomos. So the English translation then from the Greek is law. So Torah in Hebrew becomes law in English, but that's not what Torah means. Torah means teaching, instruction. doesn't mean law. Or it can be referring to the entirety of the first five books of the Bible. So right off the bat, we have a distortion built into our English Bibles. Further, when the Hebrew thought is Law of Moses, then the Greek word chosen to translate it is also nomos. So the English translation of the Greek becomes law. Now, a few Christians know that the law of Moses is but a section that's contained within the Torah. It's not the whole of it. Another example, when the Hebrew meaning is of oral Torah, that is, Hebrew customs and traditions handed down for centuries that are said to have been given to Moses by God but were not recorded in the written Torah. Again, the Hebrew, or rather the Greek word chosen, is nomos. And so the English translation is law. When the Hebrew term halakha, meaning Jewish law, which consists of interpretations, of the Law of Moses that the Pharisees used and expected the Jewish people to obey. Again, the Greek word used is nomos, and so the English translation is law. One more instance. 
when the Bible talks about secular civil law, including Roman civil law, the Greek word used is, you guessed it, nomos, which becomes law in English. You see the problem? The only Greek word used, and therefore the only English word used for all these quite different situations and varying elements of literature and law codes and Holy Scripture within Jewish religious practice and culture are all translated using the same Greek word and it winds up using the same English word, law. And so because of our Western and Christian mental filters, naturally it seems that they must be referring to the same thing. And whatever it is, well, that thing's negative, and we've got to avoid it. So what is Christ actually referring to? When we read our English Bibles, the Law and the Prophets. Well, the good news is that when the New Testament, when in the New Testament those two terms are coupled together, in other words, it says the Law and the Prophets, it is used as a single expression that is speaking of the actual Hebrew Bible. It's not speaking of traditions or Jewish law or civil law or even oral Torah. There is no doubt in my mind that the original Hebrew thought that Matthew had and probably wrote down was the Torah and the Prophets. That is because the Torah and the Prophets very early on in Jewish history became technical terms for names for naming two of the three sections that in Jewish scholarship together make up the Old Testament, the Tanakh. The Hebrew academic leadership saw the Bible as consisting of three parts, the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings. But rather than having to say all those words when referring to the entire Old Testament, then a standard expression used among Jews became the Law and the Prophets. And we're going to see Paul use that same expression in several of his letters, indicating exactly the same thing. And hear me, they're speaking of the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Exiting now our brief language lesson and the dilemma that some strained biblical language translation can cause, the incredibly important bottom line is this. In Matthew 5.17, Christ emphatically said He did not come to abolish any part of the Hebrew Bible. And just so there's no confusion going forward, the terms Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, and Old Testament all mean exactly the same thing. And so I'll rotate the use of them. Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, same thing. So if what Yeshua has said and is about to say is decisively not to be taken to mean that a he is in some way changing or scrapping any part of the Old Testament, then exactly what is he doing in his speech? The last half of verse 17 says in English, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The King James Version says, I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Other versions are nearly identical. But whatever minor word difference occurs still amounts to the same thing. In other words, our English Bible versions are in full accord as to how to translate these words from Greek to English. Christ says He came to fulfill. Now, the part, this particular part, this last part of this verse, that's where the trouble really begins. A large segment, I estimate it to be the majority, of Christian institutions fiddle 
with those few words to substantially change their meaning in order that they would accord with a long-standing Christian doctrine that the Law of Moses, which among so many denominations means the Old Testament in general, is dead and gone, and so it's irrelevant to Christians. Some go so far as to make the Law of Moses and most of the Old Testament as a danger to Christians, because delving into it or thinking that it still has relevance to us could draw us away from our faith in Christ. So let's look at this word by word. Notice that the term abolish is used again. That is, Christ first says, I did not come to abolish, and then he repeats himself but adds more information. In both instances, the word is kataluo, which the several Greek lexicons all agree means abolish or overthrow. Now, some language scholars claim it can also mean to destroy. Nonetheless, any of those meanings arrive at the same place within this verse. But now, what does it mean when he said he came to fulfill? The Greek word used is pleru. pleru. Here is the standard agreement among Greek lexicons as to the meaning of this word. This is a quote, I am not paraphrasing. To make full, to fill up, that is to fill to the full, or to render full as in to complete. Here's the rub. Christianity often distorts the meaning of pleru to include the concept of terminating, concluding, stopping. That's worse than error. It's fraudulent. It's a fraudulent changing of the meaning in order to uphold and defend a predetermined doctrine. Pleru, fulfill, is the Greek word used in the Bible when describing the fulfillment of a prophecy, for example. Fulfilling a prophecy certainly doesn't mean to stop it, doesn't mean to terminate it, doesn't mean to conclude it. Some of the standard commentaries I've read on the, the matter claim that the meaning is to complete, but for them, complete means terminate. The reason that the Greek lexicons say it means to complete, even say it means to complete within the context of rendering something full. A common example in Western society is for one spouse to lovingly say to the other that they complete me. This is the proper sense of the word pleru. It means to bring to the full, not bring to an end. Under no circumstance, nor usage in the Bible, does the Greek word pleru mean to end, terminate, stop, conclude, none of those things. Now, one of the illustrations that I've used to help picture the meaning is that it is like in the old days, you kids won't know anything about this, you know what gas stations used to have what they called service attendants, and they would put gasoline into your car for you. And then they'd walk up to your car window, and they'd ask you what they could do for you, and a standard response was what? Fill it up. If we were speaking Greek, we'd say, Pleru. That is, we want our gas tank to be made as full of fuel as it can hold. We want to bring it to its fullest capacity. We don't want the man to terminate our tank. But because I'm in the process of discrediting one of the most widely accepted and passionately defended doctrines within Christianity, I'm going to say a little more about it. When one takes Christ's meaning in this passage as terminating, <laughs> then we have him saying the unintelligible. I mean, the false interpretation has Jesus say, I come not to abolish, but to terminate. That's gibberish. 
If I abolish a law, don't I terminate it? If I abolish destructive relationships in my life, do I not stop them? Rather, Yeshua is saying that all that the Hebrew Bible points to is Him. And yet, in another sense, as we're going to soon see, He means that He will bring all that the Old Testament has established to its fullest heights and intents. So in a couple more verses, He's going to begin with, Now you have heard that our fathers were told, but I tell you. Although it's not a perfect analogy, not at all, it's not unlike when the atom was first discovered, a little more than a century ago. At that time it was thought to be the absolute smallest particle that all matter consists of. But a few years later, it was brought to light that atoms themselves consisted of even smaller particles called neutrons and protons and electrons. Now this new revelation didn't in any way end or terminate or abolish the atom. The truth of the existence of the atom as a building block of all matter remained true. The discovery of the deeper mysteries of the atom added necessary understanding of it. It didn't abolish it. We need to see what Christ meant about what He came to teach us and what He certainly in no way intended to do with Holy Scripture in the same light as we think about atoms and electrons and deeper meaning. Clearly, Yeshua felt that His definitive, unambiguous statement of verse 17 could still be misunderstood, or more likely intentionally corrupted, in order for various Jewish religious factions to find fault with Him, or to support a doctrine that He did not establish or agree with. So now He expands upon verse 17 with verse 18. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a uterus stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. Other English versions have it essentially the same, with the same meaning and intent, but I'll quote a couple of the most accepted versions for you. King James Version. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The NAB. Amen. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. So in verse 17 he says that nothing he personally says or does is meant to add, subtract, change, or terminate any part of the Holy Scriptures, any part of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, by beginning with, don't think I have come to, he is saying that he is in no way advocating for, nor will he be the responsible party for, abolishing the Tanakh. But now in verse 18, his statement becomes more general and broad in scope. That is, however it could theoretically happen, whoever might be the responsible party, it's a moot issue. Because such abolition or change isn't going to happen. Period. Then he adds a statement that a casual reading of it sort of sounds a, a great deal like a common expression that employs hyperbole, exaggeration. He says, well, the Hebrew Bible and its relevance and content will remain as is, alive, in force, until when? Until heaven and earth pass away. For so many believers, for me, many years ago, this statement is very similar to the meaning of until hell freezes over. That is, we say that, 
because hell isn't ever going to freeze over. Just as heaven and earth aren't going to pass. Ah, not so fast. Not so fast. Turns out, indeed, heaven and earth are going to pass away, and the Bible tells us when this event's going to occur. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, because the old heaven and old earth have passed away, and the sea is no longer there. Now John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was actually quoting a much earlier prophet when he wrote down that prophecy. Isaiah 65.17, For look, I create new heavens and a new earth. Past things will not be remembered. They will no more come to mind. We're not going to spend too much time with this. You can go to my teaching on Revelation for a much more extensive treatment on the passing of the heavens and the earth, but a few points do need to be made. First of all, all the major English translations agree on the wording of this passage in Isaiah. But notice that in Isaiah, it is heavens, plural, that is being recreated. This is well understood to be referring to the physical universe, not to heaven where God dwells. But in Revelation 21, because commentators don't seem to acknowledge that John is merely quoting Isaiah, the meaning has changed from there being a new universe to there being a new heaven where God dwells. That's simply incorrect. The intent is to say that all physical things that together make up our entire universe will be broken down and then rebuilt sometime after the millennial, uh, range, uh, millennial reign of Christ, now assuming John's sequence of these events is the correct one. But second, clearly, according to Isaiah and to John, and remember John outlived Jesus by a long way, this recreation of the heavens and earth upon the passing away of the old, it's a future event. And obviously enough, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I was personally confronted on this matter and told by serious people that the old heavens and earth had already passed away and it happened at the crucifixion. In other words, this confrontation had mainly to do with whether or not God's Torah had passed away along with Christ. These folks agreed it is simply not possible to accept Matthew 17 and 18 in any other way that until the heavens and the earth did pass away to be replaced with new that the Torah and the Old Testament remained in force for believers according to Yeshua. So the only solution was to determine that this event had already happened. I'm still at a little lost for words to reply to what is so obviously untrue. But such is the lengths that some Christians will go to in order to defend the undefendable among long-held church doctrines. Now third, because in his Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua was not using the passing of the heavens and the earth as a mere expression and hyperbole, but rather he was telling of an actual and real event that includes a real marker in the timeline of redemption history, it is self-evident that indeed the content and the relevance of the Tanakh is going to end at some defined point, and that defined point is upon, upon the passing of the old heavens and earth and the recreation of a new heavens and earth, but as he said, not until all that must happen, happens. And by the way, because it was Isaiah who foretold the destruction of the old heavens and earth and the recreation of the new, 
Many Jews would have been familiar with this statement. Not at all put off about such a thing coming from the mouth of Yeshua. Of, uh, Yeshua. And yet, <laughs> Christ is so intent on getting this crucial understanding across to the crowd that obviously had been taught they had been taught something different in their synagogues and those who might scoff at what is saying or pervert what he is saying into something he's not saying he goes even further he says that not even the tiniest part of the holy scriptures are going to be abolished or changed or added to or subtracted from leading up to the passing of the current heavens and earth. Not even a single letter in a single word will be altered by the only authorized entity that could ever legitimately do that. God. But as he insists, that's not going to happen. And since Yeshua is the Word, I think that promise comes on pretty good authority. Now, some of you hearing this, I know, may be wrestling with it. Some may be just dismissing it altogether, regardless of the plain nature of what these few verses say, because this seems to fly in the face of all that you've heard at church since you became a believer. Suddenly, you're hearing that not only is it not wrong to keep following all the Old Testament, which includes the part that Yeshua is going to focus on, the law, but you are obligated to do it. I feel your pain. <laughs> A long time ago, I was confronted with this as well. And let me tell you, it took prayer and time for me to realize that how I felt, how I just felt about it emotionally is simply not relevant. How shook up I am about it is merely the result of me not personally studying and then believing God's Word for what it says. Instead, I was looking to the very religious authorities of certain Christian denominations whose jobs it was to defend that denomination's existing doctrines. It was their sworn duty to maintain the status quo. Let's face it. How nice it is to hear and believe that all you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer, now you're saved, and so you're relieved of any further obligations to God. You have the fullest freedom and liberty. No boundaries, no rules, no duties. In fact, there's no reason you can't go right back to your old sinful life because Christ paid for those sins anyway. So for you, there's no consequences. But should you be so foolish as to try to actually obey God's written commandments, why, you're doing wrong. You're being, uh-oh, a legalist. Our Messiah would never want that, right? Well, Matthew 5.19, so whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the complete Jewish Bible version. What does the King James Version sound like? Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All the other English versions say essentially the same thing. Christ has given the instruction. Now he tells his listeners the consequences of obeying or disobeying. 
This is sadly another verse that has been intentionally spun and violated in order to pound a square peg into a round hole. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many sermons I have heard many years ago that this was not talking about the very thing Yeshua was talking about, the Hebrew Bible, the Law and the Prophets. This was talking only about entirely new commands that He would issue that would abolish and replace the older ones. I've also heard a few sermons that claim it ought to be the goal of a Christian to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Because for some, that's an indication of humility and meekness. Why, you certainly don't want to push yourself to the head of the line. For other pastors, they say it's the believer's reward for dutifully breaking God's commandments that Jesus has supposedly just abolished. So seeking to be the greatest in God's kingdom well, that's wrong. Just as obeying God's old biblical commandments. Well, that's wrong. So what would Christ's words have meant to the ears of the many Jews hearing this directly from Him? It was the common traditional understanding in synagogues that there were lesser and greater laws. These amounted to the heavy and light commandments, the ones that brought the direst consequences for disobedience, and that's opposed to the ones that just kind of brought, uh, brought you a slap on the wrist. Christ says that despite what those scribes and rabbis may have told you, I tell you, you are to obey all the laws. And commandments of God with equal devotion. He says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that's enough to ponder for today. We'll continue with Matthew 5 next time.